Hi, it's Andy here. As you may know from looking at the title of this episode, we are talking about how to play Cube on a budget today, which is a great introductory topic for somebody that might think that Cube is inaccessible because it's expensive. So it could be a lot of people's first episodes. And if we were good at podcasting, we would say, because we're doing this topic, let's not waste a bunch of time at the beginning talking about something completely unrelated. And yet, we did. On this episode, we spend a huge amount of time talking about the new breakthroughs in competitive Tetris, and what it means when human conquest breaks through a perceived barrier, and the various ways in which computers can glitch out and make things seem more meaningful than they actually are. So if you're here for the vibes, and you're here because you like the show, then just listen as normally, but if you're here for the first time because you just want to get right to the meat of how to cube on a budget, then you should skip ahead to timestamp 2553, which should be in the show notes wherever you're listening to this, hopefully linked in a helpful way. This is a really interesting like chicken and egg problem too, because I'm recording this intro and I don't know how long it's going to be, which means I don't actually know how long it's going to be until we hit that segment. So I've just had to choose an arbitrary amount of time to leave for this intro. So I knew what that timestamp would be before I started recording the intro. So this is me just filling up extra time and making you realize how weird and tricky it is to edit a podcast sometimes. Looks like I've got a few seconds left, so uh, spay and neuter your pets. Free Gaza, uh, make sure you drink water today and stay hydrated. Oh no, here comes the music! Hey everybody, it's your Lucky Paper Radio for the week. I am Andy and I'm here as always with my co-host, Anthony. One of the long skinny pieces that shows up at just the right moment and clears four lines I've laid out for him, Maddox. Okay, wait, is this a Tetris bit? Because I actually do know that a thing happened with Tetris. You do know? I thought for sure I'd get to break this news no, to you. No, um, It's sorry. made it this far into the normal world? You don't look the, a weird like the this. The Brothers Green uh, did, t- did a little discussion on uh, the Tetris. <sighs> I really thought I'd get to break this news to you. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Dis- let's let's start over. No, it's fine. What do you it's mean fine. the long skinny bit? Are we talking about Legos? How much did the Brothers Green cover? Also, you never watch videos. Yeah, but they have a podcast too. Oh, it's on their podcast. Yeah. Okay. Well, which means I don't know what Tetris looks like. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, for those that don't know, this past week or a week ago, I guess when you're hearing this. Tetris was beaten for the first time ever, and I'm really interested in moments where human conquest human achievement makes like big leaps you know uh you and i have talked for sure about the fosberg flop before oh of course classic people might not know about the fosberg flop is it the fosberg or i'm pretty sure it's the fosberg flop fos it's the fosbury flop Fosbury flop? I don't know if you want to take a different take or just uh own that no it's fine fosbury flop whatever for those that don't know if you've watched high jumping at the olympics you've seen this Pole vaulting. It's only pole vaulting or high jumping. Is it both? <laughs> Look at it now. You gotta tell me which one it is now. I'm pretty sure it's high jumping. I think it's, it's just high, high jump. jumping. It's, just, it's the Fosbury flop. Did they always go backwards on the pole vault? They couldn't figure out how to go backwards on the high jump. Let me show you a picture. This will explain. I well. know what it is, but I, but did they not do it in pole vaulting too? Yes. No. I I get that, but that's what they do in pole vaulting too. Do they always do that in pole vaulting, and no one realized to also do it in high jumping? The word pole doesn't appear on this Wikipedia page, so I don't know what to tell you. Okay. Look. For those that don't know, if you watch the Olympics and you see people doing the high jump, you got these runners, these athletes, these Olympians, they run up this big long runway and then they jump and then twist midair and go over the pole backwards, right? You've all seen this. And for the longest time, 
this was not how anybody high jumped. Everyone just high jumped normal. Like <laughs> just a hurdle, like you're running and you just go up tall. Why? Well, I, I think something. they must have dove over it normally, like front facing, because you couldn't hurdle over anywhere near that high. But they didn't know to twist and like use the curve of their back to like move their center of gravity over the pole. And this one guy, Dan Fosbury, did I get that name right? Dave Fosbury? For some reason, Dan or Dave is coming to uh, me. Dick Fosbury. Dick, jeez. <laughs> anyway, D- Dick Fosbury comes along, invents this new way to high jump, and just shatters all the high jump records. Everyone adopts this new technique, and it's a big leap forward in the high jumping world. I imagine you don't follow competitive Tetris. That is correct. Yep. I just think it's so interesting that people spend a bunch of time... Like, the deal with humanity is if you invent a thing, somebody, and it gets popular enough, some people are just going to dedicate their lives to it. Like, that's just, like, the cool nature of us having, broadly speaking, as a species, like, some amount of recreation time to actually, like, sink our teeth into. And so, people have been playing the original NES Tetris competitively since it was released 35 years ago, or however long it was ago, whenever the NES was released. I don't need corrected on that one. It's fine. Don't write in. And for the longest time, the way that competitive Tetris went is that once you got to level 29, that was considered like the end of the game. Because once you're at level 29, that's the max speed that the pieces can possibly fall. And at that point, they're falling too fast, such that even if you hold the left or right button on the controller, you can't get the piece all the way to the left or right side in time. Like the key repeat on a held button is not fast enough to get the piece to the left or right side before it gets to the bottom. And it was kind of managed just the end of the game. This is how the game would end. They would just stack blocks up and make them fall down too fast. And haha, humans can never beat that. Isn't that funny? Then this technique called hyper tapping was developed, which is basically a technique of mashing the buttons really quickly, right? So instead of holding the left or right button, you could actually press it extremely quickly in rapid succession. And for like context, the piece falls at level 29 and above in Tetris, I think less than a sixth of a second from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. We're, th- we're talking about like on one particular console, right? Like one software implementation NES, of this. Because, the original Tetris. Because obviously lots of reproductions of the game have been created and they all have slightly different dynamics probably in terms of how a button press is interpreted and affects right. the physics of it, right? This is okay, just cool. the original NES Tetris. Don't quote me, but I think they actually have maybe... Everyone plays different patches versions too because of dumb reasons. Uh, like, I think one of the first times a record was broken, it was broken by somebody who was playing on a machine with a slightly different frame rate, and so they didn't count it. It's all weird. But suffice it to say, for a long time, the game effectively ended at level 29. If you could even get there, then it would just go too fast, you would lose. Then they invented this technique called hyper-tapping, which was to basically, you know, a technique to mash the buttons really quickly, and that allowed people to get further in the game. And then, much more recently, I want to say within the last 10 years, uh, there was a technique called rolling that was invented, or actually adopted from other competitive video games. Do you want to guess maybe how Wait, rolling works? other competitive... Oh, does it have to do... So this th- they talked about rolling, but I couldn't picture what they were talking about. Does it have to do with the way you're using the controller? No, so it was adopted from competitive arcade cabinet games, and it's a technique of mashing where basically, to press a button in an arcade cabinet very quickly you would basically like roll your fingers across it and press it once with each finger. So like your four non-thumb digits, you would roll across the top okay. of the button, thus pressing it four times very quickly in succession. Okay, so it's a, a, a physical dexterity technique to allow you to press the button faster. Yes, but in NES... The Can way you not just put a little sausage on a motor? And I remember people doing this at some point. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <Just bzz. laughs> well, in, in NES Tetris, though, you the little like directional pad is nowhere near big enough to do this technique on and so the rolling technique in NES Tetris involves holding the controller in such a way that you have a hand on top that is just placing your finger over which direction you want the buttons to 
to press, like which direction you want to move the piece, and then you roll the underside of the whole controller into your fingers because you can't possibly roll on that such a small surface of the directional pad. You have to roll on the whole flat bottom of the controller into your fingers that are basically just there as stationary objects to be pressed against at rapid speed. Wow. Okay. I totally thought this was just some element in the game that involved, like, maybe moving the pieces such that it, it, it was spinning at the point that it had to move over some other sticking up piece. But no, this is no, just this a is physical... purely just because the key repeat of holding a button was not fast enough, they had to invent a way to press the button faster. Wild. And it's, it's, all, it's entirely dependent on, like, the controller working yeah, the way I've that it does. Lots like, of questions about that. Like, do you, do you get, like, a really good controller that's just, like, the solder connections are just really good? <laughs> that's so. a great question. I mean, they're all all the videos I've seen. They're using NES controllers. I don't know if it's probably a situation like in competitive Super Smash Brothers. People love GameCube controllers, which are uh, actually they started being made again because Nintendo made them because people like them so much. But for the longest time, they weren't still being made, and you would people would just like take apart old GameCube controllers, replace all the components with you know better versions of the same components, or fix them or repair them. Maybe that's the case in competitive Tetris. I'm not sure. Anyway, this new technique called rolling was invented, which allowed people to meet, reach even higher scores. And Tetris obviously doesn't have an end, right? Like, yeah, this is the interesting part to me. Is I mean, a lot of games that we play today are like, here's the narrative. You go, you meet the dragon, and then it's like, cool, you won, you got the dragon. But Tetris is just like, we just keep getting faster. Like, we can do it with computers that just say, every time you do a row, make the number a little faster. And eventually, they expect that no human can beat it. So the game's just going to reach the end state, right? Even that, like, even once you've exceeded the fastest level, it just goes on forever. And so eventually, you just, you lose focus. The pieces fall in a random order that is too difficult, and you just lose, right? There is no programmed end state, or at least intentionally programmed end state in Tetris. But... Obviously, at some point, people came along and just decided to build algorithms that would just play Tetris ideally, like just place the pieces based on some logic that would always have perfect dexterity, never mess up a placement because they rolled the button one too many times or whatever. And by doing that, people discovered that the game eventually just crashes in a bunch of places. It just gets to a point where, obviously, this... I mean, the, the programming of these old games is really interesting because, like, the whole cartridge holds almost no data, right? Like, these giant NES cartridges back in the day, these games had to be super, super efficient in terms of the use of space uh, in order to actually fit the whole game on this cartridge. And so the way that it's built just eventually just breaks down. And so they know from these things breaking down that eventually the game just crashes at certain points. And some people have even gone so far as to, like make huge spreadsheets of all of the levels that you can cause a crash on and what has to happen on that level to cause a crash. I think the first level you can do it on is like 154, 155, and that's only if you clear a single line on that level. If you get a double line or a triple line or a quadruple line clear uh, on that level, it doesn't actually count as crashing the game. It just keeps going. And then beyond that, there's just more and more crashes. And I think eventually, if you play in such a way that you baby the game you play to avoid all of the crashes there is an inevitable crash somewhere around level like 250 or 60 some well i'll link a video in the comments that has this laid out in more detail if you care to know but they know there's a crash in the game which became a goal ostensibly of the community of like well let's actually play the game to the end where what gave up was not me the player i didn't lose i just played so hard that the game broke and that will count as beating tetris right the thing that ostensibly shouldn't be able to be done but there were two big barriers in the way of this. Do you know all of this? Is it that Greens talk about all this stuff already? Um, 
I would say they're pretty skilled at summarizing a thing concisely <laughs> and presenting the right details that tell the story. And we're not. You're saying I'm just I'm, more. I'm too verbose. Me, you're giving me some more detail. That's great. Do they talk about dusk and charcoal? No. Okay. So here's the deal. <laughs> so in Tetris, the level colors are programmatic, right? It's basically meant to be just ten color palettes that are looped over every ten levels. So they have this color palette programmed into this like color palette table and they loop over these colors and the way they loop over them, they basically look at the number of the level. They say, is it, is it less than 10? If so, just render that part of the color table. If it's not less than 10, then just subtract 10 until it is less than 10 and then render that layer in the color table, right? So like they're essentially just, if it's level 29, they subtract 10, still not less than 10, subtract 10 again, now it's 9, it's the same color as level 9. Okay, so it's just a way to do modulo in reverse with a while loop. Basically. Or modulo for negative numbers. Now here's the problem. We've all been here as programmers. Here's the problem though, this is this is the part I think is really interesting, and maybe you find interesting too. The way they're storing bytes on this device, for some reason, when you get over 128, the magical number, the number is considered negative in some way. Yeah, number formats are interesting. I'm not a detail on NES architecture, but yeah, I mean, you've got, uh, you're trying to represent a number. It's in binary, so it's the same as counting up uh, 1, 2, 3, but instead of 1, 2, 3, you have 1, and then you have what looks like a 10, and then you have what looks like an 11, and right. then what looks like a 100, because you just only, each of those digits work exactly the same way as decimal numbers, but you only have 0 or 1 as the options there. And in 8 digits, you would only be able to hold up to 128, right? Right, but then you, if you want to account for negative numbers, you have to agree that one of those particular particular bits, like one of the individual binary uh, components, is the thing that says, is this a zero or one? Right. And, you know, again, like all these things are arbitrary, like somebody made up and said, for this computer architecture, we're going to agree that this bit represents positive or minus. But if you end up in some systems having this overflow where you've performed some operation and that bit overflows into the next bit that it really shouldn't have because we didn't think this would happen or we didn't account for that or who knows computers get complicated you can end up having weird exceptions like that right this is also a fun fun thing that you can actually have in a lot of number representations in computer systems you can actually have negative zero that is a distinct value because you have that one bit that is positive or negative and it can be there when you have zero so i mean i guess theoretically if they had programmed this expecting that that number could be higher than 128 but which you they to, absolutely did to do something right they and absolutely you're didn't limited expect. in terms of how much space like modern computers are also like yeah you need a number we're gonna give you 32 bits and also if you overflow that we'll like give you this dynamic register and whatever right my point is that like it's not like they could never have made tetris that would exist beyond what was actually level right. 138 because remember they were subtracting 10 from it and checking that number so if they, they would have had to then assign the number to like two bits worth of space and like you know somehow accommodate that but they didn't they just had the like number of the level stored in one bit or one byte or whatever and so when it got to 128 or 138 minus 10 the result was just negative 127, uh, which is not greater than 10. Mm-hmm. And so the machine just looked at it just like goes in a loop. Well, no, it just looks at some other part of the like code table, like some completely unrelated thing, and says, "There's the color of this level. That's the color this level is supposed to be." And so the colors of the levels just go absolutely the, insane. The color is uh, uh, uh the the shape of the L1. Oh, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's reading some other data as hex values, or I don't even know how start color was stored back then. I guess RGB values, right, if it was an actual TV, uh, which would be hex. I don't know. The point is, it reads other data as the colors, and the colors end up just looking totally crazy, uh, which is actually, for the most part, just cool and fine. Like, some of the colors are just totally out there. <laughs> okay, cool and fine. 
But they know from having these algorithms that play the game perfectly that there are two levels that are almost invisible. The colors are so dark that it's basically impossible for a human to see what colors are happening. They're called dusk and charcoal. I forget the numbers of them, but they were long considered just, okay, well, you get to this point, you can't tell what's going on. And eventually players just got good enough that they, I think you can see in the little box that tells you which piece is coming next. I think it's a little more clear which piece is which. And so players actually just have to essentially memorize what the board looks like before that level begins. And then when they get into that level for the 15 seconds or I don't know, like 30 seconds, I'm not even sure how long you're spending each of these levels at this point. But for that amount of time, they're just playing blind, essentially. And knowing I have this piece and remembering what the board looks like and trying to place it in their memory and humans finally got good enough to get past this, those two levels, and eventually this led to this 13-year-old kid named Blue Scooty. 14-year-old kid? Blue Scooty. That was the really funny thing that, about the summary that I heard, is that the names of people involved just getting com- completely more ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, this kid named Blue Scooty, I think his actual name is Willis or whatever, but he beat the game, just got to the first crash, and actually, he actually missed the first crash. He got to level 155, where you have to clear one line on the 10th clear, and he messed up. He cleared a triple instead of one line on the tenth clear. And you can see his like heart sink. He's like, I missed it. And then he just keeps and playing. And he's been playing for like hours and hours to get to this point, right? Each individual session, if you like that game, I think took him like forty minutes to get to okay. the point where it crashed. That's and still so a lot of time. That's a ton of time. To come down to a few seconds of do you press or that's a few a, milliseconds of do you press the right button? Absolutely, yeah. And that's the thing is like you know the beginning of those games for people that are that good are like largely rote, and then they're good. They're good enough that they can essentially, if they stay focused maintain at that speed somewhat indefinitely until they hit these huge roadblocks of like, here's a level where you can't see, it's basically invisible. Uh, so anyway, kid gets past it, he crashes the game actually a couple levels later because he was just like, I'll just keep playing, I missed the like one mm-hmm. crash that I knew about in my head, I'll just keep playing and hoping that I hit some other crash because they get more and more frequent as the game goes on. Eventually crashes the game. Here's the part they might not have mentioned, I'm not sure when the video that the Greens made or the podcast the Greens made came out. Since he crashed the game for the first time in 35 years or whatever... Three more people have also crashed the game wow. at different points okay. in a week. They just now that everybody knows it's possible, everybody's like, "Yeah, we can we can break it." What was the the difficult mile? The, f- the I know four minute the, mile. I think it was the four minute, minute mile that was originally like how fast? an eight I mean, minute mile. That was really tough. To <laughs> well, break. now we run under three minute miles. I want to. Yeah. S- is that true? No, it's not true. A time of recording, the fastest run mile is three minutes and forty three seconds. So, quite a ways away from breaking the three minute mile. But like it was a similar case, right, where some of those barriers are, we call them barriers because it was a thing that no one had done. And then after somebody did it, everybody else was like, well, now I know it's possible. I guess I'm I'm, screw that guy. Yeah. I mean, so this kid proved it was possible. And then once they figured out the crash was actually reachable, there was like multiple people that were getting up every day and just on Twitch streaming, trying to be the ones to first get it. Now people are competing for like the highest score when you crash the game, the shortest amount of time, like in clock time before you actually get to a crash. It's just, uh, I don't play Tetris, if that needs to be said. I think it's a fine game, but I haven't played in years and years and years. And I'm, not inter- I'm interested in playing competitive Tetris. I'm just so interested in these, like, little worlds where, like, these people have just been like, no, nah, this is my game. And, like, this kid, Blue Scooty, started playing when he was 11. He's been playing for, like, three years, right? Like, which is a huge portion of his life, but not that long. And it's just really interesting to me that people have, like, broken through a new barrier, and now it's, like, a whole renaissance in competitive NES Tetris. If Blue Scooty gets far enough, does he just like start reading his name from other parts of his birth certificate? And he's like, oh, my <laughs> name is that second half of the date plus the first half of my doctor's name. <laughs> to find your Tetris name, take the first two characters of the city in which you were born and add the middle two digits of your social security number. Anyway, 
I just think it's very fascinating that there's still these barriers to be broken where it's like for 30 years, everyone was like, well, of course you can't be Tetris. And then it's like, oh, you can. Oh, three people did it in a week, you know? Mm -hmm. Really makes you think. Yeah. I mean, to me, the interesting thing was just that here's a game. It has no win condition, but there are ways to break the game, which as a computer programmer, I'm like, that's not a win condition. That means that the the software is bad and we should fix it. <laughs> but you can just reinterpret that situation and be like, there is no win condition. This is a player versus system experience. And it is all about, can the player continue to meet the requirements that the system is presenting them? And you're saying, well, you as the system, you as the computer program are equally bound in this contract to provide me with that exercise, to provide me with those tools to try and continue to, to fulfill this process and hey it's you the computer that has failed to deliver on yeah. this contract of you failed to keep dropping blocks you failed you're to supposed keep to keep blocks. dropping blocks and you failed therefore i have beaten you computer which is interesting i would be really good at life if uh <laughs> if a computer bug constituted oh man computers are really no no you, your tone changed you got you went to the sad tone <laughs> just I, like I've, I've beaten my uh pay my taxes because i found a bug in <laughs> I think it's brilliant and beautiful that for the first 29 levels of Tetris, you play the game Tetris as designed by the designers and engineers that built Tetris. And then for levels 29 to 137, you play this like theoretical realm that is still within the like predictable outcomes. Like You could have asked the Tetris developers, what happens when I get to level 76? And they could have told you. They would be like, well, I guess this happens. But No, they wouldn't have thought about that. I mean, they, they would know that it still just loops over the 10 color palettes, and it would eventually get you there. Like that's You're still okay, within... Sure. It's going at a speed they didn't that expect part. you to be able to press buttons fast enough to actually play, but it's still within the realms of, of ex expectations. Then when you hit like a level 138, you start playing like a game that is partly shaped by the designers of Tetris and partially shaped by like the raw technology you're playing on and the yeah. history in which the game was built and made, right? Like if you're playing Tetris on like a web browser or like a modern computer or something that it's a new version of Tetris, that's not part of it. You, you don't get to level 138 and have everything go absolutely haywire. That is part of the history of this game that you're still playing, you know, 40 years after it was made or whatever. I just think the whole thing is very beautiful and awesome that it's, it's yeah. still happening. That's that's a wild technology thing. And, and you and I do a lot of computer programming, but in these sort of much more abstracted languages where we are not directly manipulating memory registers or working with these kinds of low-level number systems that have these kinds of limitations. And that's very different from programming in the past. And I know just enough to be like aware of how these things kind of abstractly can happen. And it is just wild that, you know, usually if you have that kind of like memory overflow or accessing the wrong piece of memory, programs just crash. Like they just behave in unpredictable ways and just fail because like nonsense. Yeah, this is not a color. I mean, like, well, it's just a perfect example. Like this kind of code didn't have like type checking. They, they weren't like, this isn't a number I'm getting back. They were like, sure, render the color of the block. Yeah, it's like, a, <laughs> it's all just binary. So yeah. we'll treat that as a color because it's whatever. And it's just very interesting that just this one piece of logic happened to access some wrong, you know, corrupt piece of memory that was just being used to render a color. So that was fine. Whereas if it had been used to like do yeah, anything with the physics the interface or, like, there. Yeah. Yeah. Do anything else or like keep counting your score or do something else that was more in integral to the system. Well, the score does break. stop working at some point because it's only got so many digits. So they have sure. had to devise at so least thought about that. They put a, they put had a to at least devise patches for the game. They play competitively that will keep track of their score beyond the number of digits that are available. So wait, why didn't they count that as beating it? Because you're still playing. It's but just not, but it, before they patched it, they should have just, just said, we, but we're you, not you still get it. to play. It's just not like the fact that the scoreboard broke doesn't mean your score still is going up. When you say patch, up. what do you mean? Like, did they fix it? 
I at some point did the game crash when you reached the highest score? No, no, no. It just stayed that it stayed nine, 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 and you could keep playing. Okay, so they patched. So it they to had no way to know to the score. Right, they had no way to know what your actual score was. They could have counted. They could have been like, "Now I start counting." <laughs> I'm playing blind, just like in level charcoal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I might be getting some of those very detailed things wrong. So watch videos if you care about the actual details. The, one of the craziest things, which it seems like such a weird coincidence, is that apparently the only level that you cannot get past in any way, like they're guaranteed to crash on, which I think is level 255 because they get 256, another special number in 8-bit systems that probably breaks in some other way. That level, apparently, the way the colors happen to shake out is all the blocks are blood red. <laughs> oh, neat. What are the chances of that? Don't yeah. try and tell me the chances of that. I'm sure well, you can maybe I, figure it out. No, no, no. I can't figure it out. Well, I could figure it out if we assumed uniform random stuff in the corrupt memory which is not accurate but um, you get to the la- the last level that you actually can't beat that no humans ever saw until they built robots to play the game no perfectly humans. and like tracked all of the potential glitches and you realize that it's like you get to the all blood red level like that's how you would design it if you were human saying let's make the level that yeah. kills you no matter what yeah my less romantic take on it is is two parts one is just that Random events can feel more random than they seem. I would just go back and listen to the Radio Lab on stochasticity, and they make a great point that something can feel like how did these how did this coincidence no, happen? I know, and it's I like, know. well, if you called that shot, if you were like, wouldn't it be crazy if this happened? And or like these two events happened in a parallel way, then sure, that would be very unlikely. But if you just look at a pool of a ton of random events, picking out two that are happening parallel, like this is the particular level and it's a weird color. Sure, but of all the computer bugs, that's just the one that we're talking about because it comes out in a cool way. The other thing is, honestly, of all the things for people, to, like, of all the things to say, like, no one has ever looked at this screen before. Isn't this crazy? Yes, and there are a lot more cool things that we could look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still a bunch of, you know, undiscovered species at the bottom of the Marianas yeah, Trench and yeah. stuff, but... Anyway. What are, those are just worms. Various, you know, vent worms living off of volcanic vents that are shooting stuff at them uh, anyway this is not a podcast about tetris <laughs> i would not have believed not. that i mean you know uh, can we can we in any way tie that back to cube design is that any way well, we can there, possibly do tetris that tetris is made of little squares whoa and i never thought of that if you, if you were able to rotate tetris in a way that was not possible with the, the software architecture that could only have tiny tiny numbers it'd be cubes really makes you think This is instead a podcast about Magic the Gathering and mostly cube and cube design. And, you know, maybe we indulge a little bit in that introductory topic, Anthony, because I think it's episode maybe we don't have all that much to say on. But we're going to talk about how to play cube on a budget, which we don't talk about it a lot. And I think we'll get into the detailed reasons as to why. I mean, one obvious reason is just that everybody listings at their own spot and you know decides to spend however much they decide to spend on the game some people you know invest a ton of money into it some people don't invest any money into it and just print out proxies for everything and so it's hard to say anything universal given that everyone's at such a different place but nevertheless let's you know try and address how you can potentially play cube without spending a lot of money because there are people that have the impression that cube is really expensive and so let's shatter those incorrect assumptions of those people anthony yeah, I mean, I think it's worth just sort of talking about magic as a game in general and how it can yeah. be expensive and how yeah. that relates to Cube in particular, how Cube yeah. is kind of novel. What I used to always tell people, especially when I was at a point in the game where I was playing a lot of limited, because I th- even people that had never played the game had the impression that magic was expensive. You know, maybe their one contact I mean, point right. was they would see some article about what crazy price Black Lotus had just been sold sure. for. And so they hear you play magic and they're like, oh, I've heard about that, but don't the cards cost a ridiculous amount of money? And what I would always tell people was, 
it doesn't have to be, but it is. Uh, and what I, mean, what I mean by that is... I stole is, that answer from you because it's so good. It's like, great. no, it can be as cheap as you want, but it won't. It'll be expensive. <laughs> right. And what I meant specifically, at least for the way that I was playing the game, was I go play F&M once a week and I do a draft and that costs me like 15 bucks. Uh, it costs me like what a movie would cost. But I also get like cards that I can take away and add those to decks or I could resell them to the shop if I wanted to or whatever. And so it's like, as far as how much am I willing to invest in a hobby say, watching movies once a week versus playing Magic once a week, it's kind of similar. So in a way, Magic kind of can be pretty affordable. On the other hand, it's not, because a lot of people are just going to get much more invested, and while I'm playing Limited, I'm also buying a couple cards to upgrade a Commander deck here and there, or what have you. Uh, So it does tend to add up, and especially if you are playing competitive, if you want to build a modern deck, I'm not really sure what they cost today, but I'm guessing it's still at least a couple hundred dollars. Oh, uh, yeah, even I mean, standard decks are, can be a couple hundred bucks if you want to be playing really competitively. So Magic kind of has this weird sort of mutability to it where, yes, you can play it in affordable ways, but the more invested you get into it, it's very likely that they are going to find ways to get a lot of money from you. Yeah, and I think... To, to put it in the most cynical way possible. And, you know, it, it's just why it's always impossible to say, like, whether something is expensive in a vacuum, right? Because when it comes to recreation, people spend wildly different amounts on wildly different things. A lot of people just can't afford to spend almost any money on recreation, and so it becomes television or video games, which all things told are actually very cheap in terms of recreation, video games. But a lot of people, their recreation is traveling or riding their motorcycle on the weekends or collecting watches or whatever, and in all those things, you can spend... Also, just insane amounts of money on the thing that is ostensibly your hobby, right? Like, yeah, you like a modern deck is probably as expensive as like a round trip flight to Europe from the United States, right? That's probably the same rough, depending on where you live in the States, what kind of deck you're playing in modern. Like, you're probably talking about roughly the same kind of uh, value proposition there. I think the tough thing for people to like get their heads around, especially if they are not familiar with the game, is they look at the actual little pieces of paper and they're like, wait a minute, this is worth all that? And of course, like, the way value works in Magic is like, no, that little piece of paper is not worth that. It's a little piece of paper. What the little piece of paper represents is this, like, this whole world that, like, unlocks and, like, makes available to you. And, like, that's the true value. Like, if everyone just stopped playing this game tomorrow, this would just be paper. It would just be garbage. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if I was to compare this just to other hobbies, like, I love to cook, and I can cook fairly budget-friendly in terms of, like, both ingredients and what tools I'm using. The knife that I use every day is still, like, a cheap knife that I've had for literally, how, like, 15, 20 years? Mm, not quite that long. But, okay, you know, but a long time. 12, 15 years. Yeah. So it's like I can get basically everything I need from very affordable tools, but if I'm invested in it for a very, very long time, eventually I'm going to want that upgrade pick that I can reach for every once in a while. So it's like it can be if you're really focused on making it a budget thing, but if you're going to spend a lot of time on it, there's a good chance you're uh, going to end up spending more on it. So it's like... Yeah, it is, even if it doesn't yeah. have to be. And cooking is one of the only hobbies that has, like, oh, that also sustains you physically and is, like, a required thing you for you eat. to do to live. So cooking even is, like, one of the rare hobbies that has way more of actual justification for spending money on ingredients or whatever than yeah. anything else. But So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of questions of, like, class and privilege and, like, money to unpack there. But suffice it to say... We don't worry about those kinds of things at all. I mean, it's not... It's not <laughs> no, one, no, no one listens to this show for our takes on any of that stuff. Let's just talk about how to play Cube as affordably yeah. as possible. I mean, maybe if we're just going to put Cube into sort of that ecosystem of different ways to play. Limited has that kind of fixed ongoing cost of it costs so much to play, whatever. And we're just talking about paper magic. Obviously, like, digital magic is a whole other complex topic. I mean, usually it's just a parallel thing of exactly the same but different costs like oh i don't know i've listened to a little bit of ryan spain's how to play optimally and making multiple accounts so that you're using 
I mean, some people will also like, go limited the same way in their like local game store sure. back when you used to get prize packs that were actually draft boosters. So sure, there's some similarities. Theoretically, that's possible. But yeah, there's an ongoing cost of limited. If you're playing a bunch, yep. every draft's going to cost something. Constructed is a pretty big upfront cost because you need to get a bunch of cards for a deck. But then it also has ongoing costs because a lot of constructed formats either either they rotate or they have new cards that are introduced to them, which means you have to if you want to keep playing competitively, keep updating your decks. You need those new cards that are more powerful uh, so you can stay competitive, probably. Of course, there are exceptions to this, but outside of having a casual group where you're just saying, like, yeah, we're going to keep playing our modern decks that were from this era and keep enjoying them, it's unlikely in most contexts that that's going to be viable. Yeah, my impression of Constructed is just kind of two ways you can play. One way is you just, like, have a deck, right? And that's your deck, and you buy in, and that's your barrier to entry. And again, even in modern, that's a really big number. I think most modern decks are probably around 1000 bucks. Like, that's probably around the average. One more little interjection here. At the time of recording on MTG Goldfish, according to their metagame breakdown and their estimated price per deck, you're looking at an average of $940 for a deck that's in the top eight decks of the meta share. There are some cheaper options if you are specifically looking for a budget deck. You can maybe play competitively or competitively adjacent for three, four hundred bucks, but for the most part, basically a grand. Legacy, you're looking at substantially more. So the the idea is like you buy in, you buy that deck, you have it. Maybe you can make you know swaps here and there as the meta changes. But if your deck just becomes bad, then you know tough cookies. The other way to buy into a constructed format is to basically buy like all of the format staples, which this is the thing I think is pretty common, especially in digital play, where it's way easier to organize a collection and just like not have to actually catalog a bunch of physical things in your actual life. But in paper too, you know, I listened to you know Brian Koval and talk about this for constructed formats. He recently. I think finished what he considered to be his like vintage buy-in, where he's like, I've got the power now, I've got four tabernacles, I've got four bazaars, I've got four copies of workshops, and like everything else, like when everything else changes, it's like trivial. I just get the new artifact that came out that's really good in the shops deck or whatever. That's not even part of the equation. It's just a matter of having this like baseline stuff. And in legacy, I mean, the funny part about that is you're just like, if I just compare anything to the ridiculous cost of these, what, how many cards does that cover? Like I mean, few, that's maybe a few dozen cards, cards, and it's going to be 40 grand or something. Okay. You know, it's going to yeah. be a lot of money. But, I mean, in Legacy, too, like, if you have four copies of every fetch land and every dual land, that is going to be the vast majority of the cost for most Legacy decks. True. I mean, uh, there's a few other cards that could be really expensive contextually, but that's going to be the most of the, most of your cost. That's the other way you can do it. You can kind of buy into a constructed format. And Cube doesn't really follow any of these models, except in that you need a Cube. So, I guess, if anything, it's closer to constructed that you have to, like buy-in to yeah. some degree. Yeah, I mean, it has features of both. It does have the initial buy-in. Cubes are generally... I think 360 is a good baseline for Let's what a lot of cubes that, yeah. are, but, you know, obviously some people go up to 720 or even bigger or as small as 180 for their first cube for a small playgroup, but you're going to have to acquire a chunk of cards to start with. What's different about it is that because you are playing in one sort of contained ecosystem, you don't necessarily need to either update that list to stay competitive so you don't necessarily need the newest most expensive cards as the format rotates you also don't need what are currently the newest most expensive cards because it is one self-contained ecosystem all the cards are going to be played against each other not against the broader field so those most expensive cards might not be what you're interested in anyway 
which is sort of like, I think a lot of people talk about Commander as a casual format being more approachable, and that's true to some degree, but it's still really easy to get into that arms race with your local playgroup where somebody gets a couple more expensive cards and you want to stay competitive, and people gradually gravitate to the more expensive cards and invest more in their decks, but in a cube that is just literally impossible because all of the pressure is internal. There is no way to, by acquiring more cards, make your performance better while you're playing within one cube. This is one of the big reasons I'm not sure we have a ton to say on this topic because my biggest budget recommendation for people is just play with the cards you have. Like, don't acquire any new cards. And if you don't have 360 yet, it's, it's weird to me to think of somebody who is in their magic arc and does not have 360 cards to their name but is looking to build a cube. If you're out there, then I guess... There are people out there. I, if you're out there, then I, I mean, maybe you play a bunch digitally and you're looking to build some paper collection. That would make some more sense, actually. But yeah, if you've got cards, play with what you have is my is my first recommendation. We have a whole episode about how to build a cube from your collection, which I think is not just a great budget recommendation, but it is also probably the best way to build a cube if you do have any kind of collection in paper. Yeah, I think that this is especially a great way to start because it, your collection isn't just a representation of some random cards. It is a rep representation of what you like about the game. So I know when I was building a cube and I was looking at the cards I had, it was like, oh, these are the rares I held on to because I thought they were cool or because I acquired them for a commander deck because I like them for some reason uh, or they are part of some theme that I'm interested in and now they end up in sort of the, the more mixed up collection, but that's still going to represent what was appealing to me about the different ways that I had engaged with the game previously. And that translates perfectly into designing a cube that also just appeals to your taste. Yeah, these are the cards you had that you didn't have use for, but also didn't really want to trade away yeah so that's the first thing just don't acquire new cards and i, I want to emphasize that this is not like making a less than cube or a baby cube or like a compromised worse cube in some way because you're not spending money on it you can have just as much fun playing with whatever cards you've got on hand as you can playing with a impeccably tuned vintage cube that's got all of the power in the world right like obviously Fun is always subjective, and some people are going to be way more excited by playing with these rare and powerful cards, but there is nothing to say that you can't have a like superb drafting gameplay experience in terms of whatever your goals are for drafting gameplay with whatever cards you have on hand, right? I mean, if you look at the most beloved limited formats of all time, most of them are not beloved because they happen to have the most powerful cards in them, right? That is not why people love limited formats. They love limited formats because of the kind of decks they can draft, the kind of games they create, and that is not dependent on having specific expensive cards. Yeah, I think it's really easy to, because as players, we like to talk about the power level of cards, because as you're building a deck or as you're drafting, that's relevant. You want to take your Steam Vents over your Is It Guildgate, because it's just going to increase your win percentage, right? But when you're designing a cube, you don't necessarily have the same incentive, where it's easy to get, start thinking like, oh, an Is It Guildgate is good enough until you can upgrade to a Shockland. That's not really accurate because if everybody's got guild gates, everybody's still playing on a level playing field within that cube. So it can still play just as well, as long as people are having the right expectations to what's going to be an effective way to play that cube. Yeah. And again, I would just look at like no retail limited set if you actually were just to like take all the commons and uncommons and build it would be that expensive. And that would that still accounts for the vast majority of the texture and feeling of that set. You know, people love Triple Innistrad. And no one's like, well, this is this would be good, but it doesn't have, you know, fetches and shocks. Like, no one's like that, right? So don't look at your... <laughs> <laughs> Someone out there is like that. And if that's you... No, no, okay. no, no. No one's like that in good faith. So don't look at your cube and say, well, my cube would, only, would be good if it only had fetches and shocks. Because no one says that about Triple Innistrad or... Uh, what's a 
recent beloved. March of the Machine was a really beloved limited format. Sure, I think pe- people love Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Neon Dynasty. No one looks at these sets and says, well, it would only be good if I just had a Snapcaster Mage to put in it, but they're I so mean, expensive. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Snapcaster Mage would be fun to play, but it doesn't make the overall set more right. or less fun. It probably makes it less fun because that card is just a little better than everything else. But but yeah, it, it's, I think it's really hard for people that are new to building a cube and drafting cube to get out of that mindset where obviously your deck is better if you have a Snapcaster Mage. But no, is the, is the environment no better? Obviously, your deck is better if you go from Guild Gates to Fetchers and Shocks. Obviously, it is. They're just better, more powerful cards. That is not how it works with Cube. And so, really focus on, think about those beloved limited sets that people adore, even though they're definitionally never based on expensive cards. Like, the core, the things people really love that they want to draft, like, Burning Vengeance is what makes people love original Innistrad, not Snapcaster Mage, even though that is an Innistrad, for example. I think the next thing to... to mention is that even if you are acquiring new cards most cards are not that expensive even though it is a feature of this hobby that the there are really really valuable sought off sought after cards the vast majority are actually not if you go on scryfall i'm just looking at the legacy card pool of cards that are worth less than a dollar that's twenty-two thousand of about twenty-seven thousand cards so actually the bulk of cards of a- long tail it's, it's kind of a long tail here <laughs> and if we go to less than five dollars it's even bigger it's 20 almost twenty five thousand cards so it's like actually a pretty small chunk of i mean and to, to be clear this is cards that have any printing less than five dollars a lot of these will also have you know some secret layer printing right. that's more expensive stuff that you when can, you say you're looking at the legacy card pool you mean the pool of all cards legal in legacy not the cards played in legacy because exactly. almost none of those cards are played in legacy yes. so yeah i mean even if you are acquiring new cards there's going to be a lot of cards that people have never seen before if you're looking at these sub $1 cards, but there's a lot, a lot that you can work with. Right. I mean, some collectors and shop owners have even complained in recent years that they have just buried us in reprints and tanked the value of cards, which we can have a whole other conversation about the secondary market health and what that means for the game. But as a player, as a cube designer, that's great. You can. There are tons of cards that I, I had this experience somewhat recently where I was making a cube list where I was just trying to have all the cards be like a ra- less than around a dollar, right? Like if it was a dollar 25, fine. But like in that range, and I was shocked at the cards that could be included, right? Mm-hmm. Just because of when we started playing, like the fact that Colan's Command is like a dollar now. It's like, what? That card has always been 15 or $20 for as long as I've played Magic. And it's just not now. It got reprinted in Double Masters or whatever, and it's no longer super playable. And that's the case with a ton of cards that you might even have in your head listening that you couldn't put in your cube. That actually you could if you just looked at the cheapest printing. And if you are trying to acquire new cards, something else that maybe is worth paying attention to, although this is a big rabbit hole as well, is that the price of cards obviously fluctuates over time. So just like you're saying, things that you have thought of as, you know, format staples that always cost 20 bucks surprise you. Those prices might not stick around. So be aware of if you have, uh, for example, Ravnica Remastered is coming out. That's going to include a bunch of reprints and... A couple weeks after that's uh, been out and there's some time for those cards to circulate, a lot of prices of cards are going to come down. And this is definitely the strategy that I took when I was getting into Magic was I just took my time acquiring fetches, shocks, things like that that I knew I would want to have access to for various decks for when there was a reprint set. I'd just pick up a couple of them. If you have the time, if you're not in a hurry, which again, Cube is great that it affords you that time because you don't Infinity necessarily time. need to keep, keep up with the way that the format is progressing. You're working at your own pace. So yeah, pay attention to things that are being reprinted and you can pick things up often pretty cheap. Yeah, I mean, Ravnica Remastered is why Parker suggested this topic for this episode. And if you have been waiting to add shocks to your Cube, then I would say... Four to six weeks from the release of this episode is probably one of the better times to buy a full set of Shocklands because 
they are being reprinted in like four different versions in the newest set mm-hmm. and you know that that base printing uh, is probably going to be as cheap as it's ever going to be for a shockland yeah and i'm we're certainly not pricing experts but that's always been my experience that when a new set comes out new cards will start out pretty pricey especially if they're things that are exciting for a particular format and they'll gradually just come down for over the course of like a couple weeks to maybe a month or two and then again things will start creeping up as the supply is just less available and i think reprints maybe have a little bit more of a quicker response in terms of coming down after a reprint yeah i I think reprints are maybe a little different i think you just want to kind of outlast that first rush of people Mm -hmm. that are buying them because they are now in their minds affordable. Like, and there are also complications, like maybe a reprint means that they are now open to another format, sure, so the prices right. can actually go up in some cases. Yeah, and needless to say, hashtag MTG Finance is not our interest or expertise. So, no, know. but you can be a slightly informed buyer. This is maybe also a privileged position, but I try to like not care about that stuff because I think that metagaming is a big bummer, and I'll just be like, is this card worth it to me for that amount of money? And if it's not, I'll just wait, and someday it will be, and I'll yeah. just, you know... Yeah, I mean, even just in broad strokes, it's like, here's a reprint set. Let me, after a couple of weeks, just take a look through uh, yeah. whatever my preferred site is and see if there's anything that catches my eye. Whatever your preferred... It's got to be Scryfall. Whatever your prefer- are, we, are we not favoring Scryfall now? Oh, I didn't want to mention a particular store site. Because- oh, yes. I'm not mentioning any of those. <laughs> no, certainly. I would look through Scryfall first, though, and then of course. buy wherever you want to buy, but Scryfall is the best place to be looking. It's worth noting that I think a lot of people would say that you should look at rarity restricted cubes for a starting point for budget cubes. And you certainly can. I mean, on average, a pauper or peasant cube is going to be more affordable than the average unrestricted or eternal cube. But there's no reason it has to be. And you and I are big champions of the idea of playing with just lower powered rares when they're exciting to you. So if you have never played a cube before and you just need a starting point or looking for a budget cube, then those are some places you can start to look. But those limitations have very specific design implications that are completely unrelated to budget, right? You can get a lot of very affordable board wipes, but there are no board wipes at common. So you're not going to have any board wipes in your pauper cube, which totally changes the texture of control, totally changes the texture of committing to the board. It changes everything about the environment. And it's not because board wipes always cost more than $5. It's because they're just never printed at common. So be aware that you're like dabbling in a space that is definitely not directly connected to price. It is like tangentially kind of connected to price but if you're like strictly following like a peasant cube for example like force of will and library of alexandria are technically uncommons depending on how you define uncommon and i've seen them in peasant cubes before so it's not that you're always playing with the same restrictions yeah i mean i think that that connection between rarity and price is pretty tenuous and it makes sense in a lot of sort of concrete cases like you're looking at the you know uh mythic rare that is a staple and standard that from the set that just came out versus the bulk commons that are in you know building up retail limited but over the course of the whole game it's really not a strong connection i mean again just looking at scryfall and looking at the rares that are less than five dollars is almost 90 percent of all rares that have ever been printed so there's still just tons and tons of cool like yeah. that was a, a limited bomb that just wasn't good enough to to be relevant in a constructed format so it's just not worth anything i think in cube we actually suffer from the naming convention like the reason those formats are called pauper and peasant is because in constructed that does mean very often that you are playing a much 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 more affordable format because your average constructed deck only plays 12 different cards right and so only three or four of those cards need to be valuable like expensive rares before the entire deck is expensive. Yeah. And so if you look at constructed pauper, 
yeah, it's way cheaper than any form of constructed eternal magic by a wide margin. But that's because none of the like absolute draft chaff 10 cent rares that you can put in your cube and have a ton of fun playing are competitive in any of these formats that are just based on zero sum winning as many games as possible. Cube is totally different in that regard. And so I think just by the fact they're called Popper and Peasant, which dubious names anyway, but they're named that because they are meant to be cheaper formats. But when you come when it comes to Cube itself, it doesn't really hold up because we get to have access to all of these bargain bin rares and mythic rares that just don't see play anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this sort of effect where if you're bringing cards to a constructed event, let's say you really need a green five drop. You really need a green five drop. You're going to show up with the best green five drop, and the second best green five drop might be still pretty powerful, but just by virtue of being the second, there's going to be no demand for it in a a constructed competitive setting, which means the prices are going to reflect that. So often there'll be a card that not only might be cheaper by a, an order of magnitude because it is slightly less powerful, it also might be a card that you honestly just find more interesting. So I think it's definitely worth exploring deeper than just what are the cards people are most familiar with that are the priciest. Is there anything else to be said around card selection specifically? Because I actually think the bigger barrier to cubing is not the cards themselves because yeah. most people either have a collection or you're willing to proxy. And again, cube is very proxy friendly. It's never going to be sanctioned except for very, very rare instances. So, you know, go with God. We're not going to tell you not to proxy. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a small point I would want to make on that specifically, which is just that there is a little bit of discomfort that can happen with proxying in even casual formats like Commander, where your opponents might be across the table and saying like, oh, well, if I knew you were going to proxy the Mana Crypt, then I would have done the same. So mm, now we have this awkward thing. Especially if you're playing with people that are not necessarily, you know, people you play with on the regular. When you're playing a cube and you say, hey, here's a set of cards, we're all drafting from this. No one is that, that conversation cannot happen. In the same way that everybody is implicitly or just necessarily on the same page in terms of the power level, people are also going to be on the same page in terms of all these other issues as well. So it's a lot more flexible and you don't necessarily have to have the same challenging conversations. Yeah. And like, you know, morally, ethically, like if you're playing a ton of magic and it's like a huge hobby and passion in your life, like I think you should be investing in the game to some degree, right? Like you should be, some of your like money should be making its way into the system to support the thing you love. But I'm never going to be like, oh, you can't afford literally this one expensive card you want to play. Then you have to go. You just can't play it to you like buy your own library of Alexandria. Just print it out. It's it fine. It is a crazy thing just imagine sitting down for a game of commander and being like no i'm playing this by you you're not allowed to unless you have six hundred dollars I mean, a lot or of people have that, have that position it's like it's a huge bummer i get that cards are real and cost money but at the same time like that is such a ridiculous thing to say somebody that that is what it costs to sit down and have this gameplay experience so i don't know i don't love proxying but i i, I don't love that either yeah I, I think you should like be circumspect if you are only proxying if you're you know looking in some like you know chinese printing site is getting way more of your money than wizards of the coast is ever seeing like i would just be circumspect about that if you are actually getting a lot out of this game that real human beings have to spend a lot of creative time and energy to build and that's me saying that with like the utmost cynicism around the like finances and business aspect of the game but you should be circumspect about that but you know again you can proxy and cube it's fine and so you should if you want to but I, I do think the bigger barrier, though, which is what I was trying to get at, is actually all the other stuff. It's mm-hmm. sleeves, boxes, sleeves. Did I mention sleeves? Like, Inner sleeves, outer sleeves, triple sleeves. sleeves. <laughs> uh, which these, you need all of these, correct? Uh, no, you don't need all of these. Okay. I, I do love double sleeve cards, but you don't need them. Um, I actually think this is a bigger barrier. 
I think the easy answer, let's just start on boxes because I hear people ask this question all the time. Okay. How do I store my cube? You know, what kind of cube boxes are out there? What are budget friendly cube boxes? And Anthony, you are like the living example that you don't need to spend any money on your cube storage. You have explicitly chosen and prefer cardboard BCW long boxes for all of your cubes and have never stored them in anything else nor felt a desire to speak to that. Yeah, I, I thought for me this would be a more temporary thing that I, you know, we're new to the format. I had been through playing other formats, so I knew that my tastes would change and grow probably. I had a battle box. I had uh, other ideas for cubes that might be different sizes for different reasons. So I was just like, yeah, I'll just start with a cardboard long box, and that's not investing a lot in a thing that I don't want to, you know, resize later. Because uh, if I get something that's cool and custom, and then I want to make a bigger cube, well... Can't really use that anymore. You can be like me and get the cool custom thing, but get it made explicitly bigger in case you want to make your cube bigger. You but then don't do make your cube bigger, then just have a bigger box you have to lug everywhere. But then also, yeah, you can't really transport it really easily if you have something big. So, I don't know. I think that the the cheap cardboard long boxes, just, you know, the white made of cardboard. BCW card boxes. That's um, the ones we all know. Those are great for a lot of reasons. Obviously, they're cheap, which means... You don't spend a lot of money on them, and you can spend money on different sizes in the future if you need. Having multiple boxes, honestly, just makes it easy to fit into different shaped bags. If you're biking to your LGS with your cube, you can make it really as small as possible because you only get the box that's just as big as you need. The one caveat about the pricing of these that I'll mention is that if you just go on Amazon and try to buy a single cardboard long box, it'll be 15 20 bucks or what? something crazy. Seriously? I, I'm making up numbers a little bit here, but like... That's insane. The actual cost of the boxes is almost nothing if you just go to BCW and buy a big stack of them. So either if you can talk to your LGS about making sure you get a reasonable price on them or... Find some friends find that some also friends. want some boxes. This is what I did. Basically, I just bought a bunch in a couple different sizes and then hand them out as people need them and just sort of eat some of that cost for the group because, yeah, I mean, buying the cost of buying one and buying a dozen of them is almost Basically the same because yeah, you're so. mostly paying for shipping. And don't give any money to those... Amazon sellers the re- that are the just resell- the, the resellers that resellers. are trying to make fifteen dollars off a cardboard box because it seems like the cheapest way to get it. Plus, these have the advantage that you can customize them a little bit. A lot of people do cool. Uh, I know Bones in particular has his almond car cube and his Eganjo drift cube with all kinds of custom decorations, uh, custom lettering of the the cube names on them, which is a lot of fun to see. Yeah, if you uh, question the validity or uh, utility of cardboard long boxes, you should know that at least at KubeCon last year, they took everyone's cube out of whatever box it came in and put them all in cardboard long boxes, every single cube. Yeah, that was a smart decision. Because it's consistent, and they know it works, and there's no questions around uh, how it's going to be handled. So that's a very simple answer to that question. We don't have to give you any... I mean, if you want to find more expensive options, you can. This is the how to cube on a budget, and how to cube on a budget is you can get a cardboard long box, and it works just as well as anything you will ever need in terms of functionality. Are there any downsides? I guess they're not waterproof, if that's a concern. They're not waterproof, but I mean... You have different needs if, if waterproof yeah. <laughs> cube box is your priority. I mean, it's definitely like if you're if it's in your bag and you get in some rain or something, there's plenty of layers of bag and cardboard box and sleeve between your cars and the outdoor that I wouldn't expect it to get wet, but... I guess get a Ziploc bag to put them in. Put, a tra- put them that in a is trash the, bag. That is the cheapest way to store your cardboard cube is- long box in a trash bag. Seal oh, uh, it up. Just, just, in, just in a trash bag. Oh, just bag. in a trash no bag. Box. No, I think you put it in a cardboard <laughs> long box first. I think sleeves are the harder one. This is honestly, I think, the biggest cost to eat for a lot of cubes. Uh, there's a, plenty of cubes that I have played that the cards in them cost less, considerably less, than the sleeves that they're in. Uh, it is not uncommon because let's say you are making a 360 card cube. That's 360 cards, plus you're probably going to want 30, 40 basics of each type. Uh, And so now you're talking about buying probably 600 sleeves in order Mm -hmm. to have enough that are on hand to sleeve everything, 
which is a ton of money. I mean, we're looking at uh, what's the what does a, a box of Dragon Shields run these days? So if you buy them from Dragon Shield, it's like fifteen bucks. I saw some other sites where you can get them as cheap as seven. It, it, you'll see a lot of different prices, and there are a bunch of different brands for sleeves. A lot of them are good, so if you can find a better price, great. But still, seven bucks, six boxes, you're still talking fifty bucks on sleeves. Yeah, and that's I, I would say. We've had some friends that have, because of the expense of sleeving a cube, they've said, well, I'm going to get the cheap sleeves for my cube because they're so expensive. There's so many of them I need. I think that's a bad move. I would not skimp out on this because more so than your own deck, which you can shuffle as carefully and as gently as you want, you're going to be handing these cards out to other people that are going to have all different shuffling techniques, and you're going to get split sleeves. And if you buy cheap ones, you're going to have to replace them more often. So if you have good experiences with cheaper sleeves, go for it. I personally am never putting my cube in anything but Dragon Shields because of my bad experiences with other brands over the years. So I don't think it's the place to save money necessarily, especially if you're thinking long-term, is the actual sleeves themselves. Yeah, and I think especially some people have tried to use the, the penny sleeves that are really more for storage than for actual shuffling, which and they are very cheap but uh dsb does that they don't really shuffle so well No, not so. penny sleeves dsb has his whole sleeves in perfect just perfect hearts the whole okay. the whole that's cube. also a choice yeah it's interesting they're very slippery until they get a little worn in yeah but then you can see the nice put magic a little back. mayonnaise on them to get started okay i'm not sure about any of that that was a little weird so yeah i mean my only tips here are one first thing i would do is talk to your lgs and say hey i need to buy a lot of sleeves can you get me a deal you know because they are buying them you know at wholesale rate and then usually most LGSs as far as I know are selling them at a very small upcharge like they're not charging you a lot more than they're buying them for right if they're selling them for $12 a box they might have paid nine or ten dollars a box to get them so it's a really small profit margin item it's not how the OGS is making a bunch of money but if you're a regular there they know that you're you know spending money on drafts or spending money on snacks or whatever uh, it's entirely possible the owner might be willing to you know batch order a bunch for you and uh, give you a little bit of a deal you can also buy them wholesale yourself, and some people swear by this. There's a company called Potomac Distribution that a lot of people will recommend for buying sleeves in bulk. And what I'll say is that uh, it's never really, like the times I've done it before, which are only the times that our local game store couldn't get in the brand or sleeve that I wanted, it, I haven't really saved much or any money because you save money you know, per individual unit, but... You still got to pay for shipping at that point because this is not like an Amazon situation where everything's just free all the time for shipping. So yeah, you're saving 20 or 25% per box, but then you got to pay $20 shipping for all the boxes instead of no shipping. And you save a little money at the end of the day. That's the kind of thing where I think you're really only saving if you're buying, you know, dozens of boxes of sleeves or hundreds yeah. of boxes of sleeves. Then it really starts to matter. Another small thing I'll say here is if you are buying sleeves in bulk and you're not going with like black or white, uh, it is not uncommon between multiple brands to have slight color variations between the otherwise ostensibly same color, right? Because you imagine there's some factory where they're mixing together dyes and sleeve material and a big vat. And if you get a you know set of red Dragon Shields from 2020 and a set of red Dragon Shields from 2022, they might be a little different, which I actually don't think presents a gameplay fidelity issue. I mean, obviously, if you were playing like competitive REL, a judge would tell you those were marked cards and you couldn't have it. I think it's more just going to be irksome. It's going to be annoying if you're your cube owner and you're like, dang, half of these cards are just slightly different colored. So if you are going to deal with colored sleeves, I would recommend buying a whole like case of sleeves. And you can buy them on wholesale distributors or through your LGS if you ask them. The cases are usually you know 10 boxes or 12 boxes or whatever. Just buy a case and then you save a little money per unit and you're guaranteed they're coming from the same batch in the factory, which means they're going to be the same color. 
Yeah, I think that's also useful if you're just starting to cube and you're trying to cut costs in other ways, like just starting with 180 cards, which is, I think, a great way to start for sure um, for a lot of reasons. But you might still want to spring for a full 600 sleeves. So if you want to grow up to 360 plus lands in the future, uh, you have that option without buying new sleeves. Yeah, if you know that your 180 is like just an entry point, it's completely reasonable to just cube at 180 cards oh, forever totally, for yeah. all time. But if you know that like you'd want to draft with eight people, that's like what you want your cube to be. But you're starting at this for now because of card availability or because you're trying to build your playgroup a little bit, then yeah, maybe maybe spring for the sleeves you need ahead of, ahead of time. I'd be remiss not to mention two perhaps radical alternatives here. One is playing unsleeved. I have an unsleeved cube. The that is sort radical. Of, the sort of bar cube movement is ascendant. And talk about cubing on a budget. I mean, bar cube is all about playing with cards you don't mind playing unsleeved. And then you don't need sleeves. And I mean, that is a huge difference of cost in terms of setting up a budget cube. If, you, if you're building your cube with cards you have on hand that are like chaff cards you're willing to like scuff up, the difference between the cost of starting a cube without sleeves and starting a cube with sleeves is like infinity percent, right? You go from, I just need to buy a long box to put these in to I need to spend 80 to $100 on sleeves in order to actually sleeve this cube up. So playing unsleeved is totally an option. And I think you'll also find that some people just really enjoy the sensation. They love riffle shuffling cards. They love being able to see the magic back. It feels nostalgic for them. So there are other advantages there that are not just budget-based. That's something you can do. Sleeves also do make cards a lot thicker, so you'll actually just need a much smaller box That's true. if they're unsleeved, which also is great for transportation. So, yeah, I mean, if you're willing to shuffle cards, uh, it's uh, there are good reasons to. Yeah, at some point we may have someone on to talk about the bar cube movement, and I think that they would be big champions of this approach for all those reasons. It's more portable, it's super cheap, and, you know, if a card, just, if a card gets beat up because it's not in a sleeve, you can just replace it. They're 10-cent cards. Go get another copy. Or replace it with a different card. Who cares? It's your cube. Another even more radical idea that I have seen multiple times before, Uh-oh. we actually talked about this on the show years and years ago, is uh, you can just put your cube in mismatched sleeves. I've seen this before. I wouldn't recommend it. I've never done it, but I've seen people that are like, yeah, sleeves are expensive, but I have had many EDH decks over the years that were all in different colored sleeves. I have this big box of mismatched sleeves. I think you're one of the rare players that doesn't have this box, Anthony, because you decided very early on, you're like, I'm just buying white hyper mats that's all i do andy i have this box you have this box of mismatched colored <laughs> of sleeves i do okay well you never know when you're gonna need some certain color to stand out i have a big long box of just a bunch of mismatched colored sleeves and look cube is casual fundamentally by which i mean not that you can't play it with a competitive mindset but that you are not playing under a judge and like strict rules around competitive play and so if you've got a play group that's not going to mind you can just sleeve it up in whatever and if you have enough mismatched sleeves going on then it actually does take i think some effort for people to try and actually cheat and find marked cards right like if you had 80 percent of your cube was sleeved in blue in blue sleeves but then you know a few cards here and there were sleeved in yellow it wouldn't be that hard for people to just without trying naturally pick up on the fact that like oh yeah my bomb is in a yellow sleeve so now i know if i see a yellow on top it's that much more likely but if you have two dozen different colors in your cube and it's just completely mismatched, then it's hard, I think, to start to actually pick up patterns there. Yeah, I mean, this is going to depend very much on your local playgroup, and I think that for most people, this is not a great option. I I, I can think of a few players in our playgroup that they would would derive information whether or not they wanted to. I think that you or I could very easily just be like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to pay attention to the color and that's going to be fine. Max is going to notice. Yeah, I mean, this has come up <laughs> on the Neoclassical Cube, which is my unsleeved cube, which I intentionally seek out heavily played versions of cards because I am not budget-researching myself there. I'm just letting us 
Riffle Shuffle even some pretty expensive cards as long as they're totally beat up, so we're not really decreasing the value of them. And in that case, I have definitely had some cards that players have been like, hey, I'm down with the whole beat up card thing, but uh, this one is just way too obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a long time, the memory jar I had was just like two orders more trash than every other card. And so if I had it in my deck, I'd begin the game by saying, hey, just so you know, this card is totally trash in my deck. It's the memory jar. So you and I both know now. It's it's at least equal information, whether it's on top of my deck or in my hand. It's not just me having that edge over you. So I I think you should be very conscious of that. It's not a very good option. I had to say it because I've seen it before. And maybe you're just that type of person listening that that kind of chaos appeals to you. It's an option. I have a couple of other tips that are a little bit unrelated to specific equipment or cards one thing I think is very common is uh, if you're building the cube for your playgroup, get your playgroup chip in cards. There's a lot of people that, you know, they don't want to hand out cash for a cube draft, but they recognize that you are taking on a project for everybody's benefit. And in the case of buying sleeves and stuff, you are taking on expense for everybody's benefit. I've actually seen some playgroups where they ask their playgroups to chip in for sleeves. I would never do that myself, but it's totally reasonable you can do that. I think a much more reasonable thing is just, hey, if you got cards you want to see played in the cube that are riding space in your binder or just aren't seeing play in your collection just toss them my way there's a lot of people that are very willing to throw extra cards at you for a cube they get to play themselves yeah definitely i think if you have an active play group having some sort of central location like a discord where you can all chat about things it really goes a long way to making those things happen and the other thing is if you are trying to build up your cube over time and you are trying to work your way up to more expensive cards uh, i'm a big advocate for Playing the game as you normally do, whether that involves building commander decks and buying some singles every now and then, or whether that involves drafting regularly and getting a big binder of draft chaff left over, just, you know, save up your cards. And then I'm a huge advocate for turning a big fat stack of cards into some store credit and then using that to acquire your expensive cards. That's what I've done for all of the most expensive cards in my collection. Anything over, you know, a few hundred bucks pretty much is a card that I have once a year at a GP or at an SCG event, I would walk in with a whole big fat long box of cards I was done playing with. And it really adds up. Like every single time I was always really surprised. Like, oh, wow, I thought this would be like, you know, 200 bucks maybe. And it turns out it's like 600 bucks. And it's a really cool feeling to be like, great. I mean, those cards are not worth $600 to me. Like they are just taking up space in my life. Uh, they're not worth that to me. And now it's, uh, you know, Judge promo lightning bolt that I've always wanted, right? And that is worth that to me. And so that's a recommendation for if you are moving beyond the like strict budget restrictions, but you want to try and navigate collecting a cube in a way that uh, feels more responsible. You know, it takes time, but I think that's part of the fun. I mean, to be perfectly honest, and this is like huge humble brag, my cube is, is getting this, to the point where there's... Be, is this going to be worse than the thing you said about per se? Uh, it's up there. <laughs> my main cube is getting to the point where there's like... Uh, I've, I've been you know, doing this technique for six, seven years now to like build this cube up. And it's to the point now where there's like a few cards left that I could like work my way towards, but then I'm just going to be kind of done. And it's actually a little bit of a bummer that there won't be chase foils to me to, for, for me to chase down anymore. It'll just be like, I, I guess I got got them. And now it's just new cards that come out. Like that's going to be kind of a bummer again, huge humble brag. I'm yeah. very lucky to be in that position, but if you, you just walk away from it, but if you, you know, I mean, I, I have never really like, individually spent insane amounts of money in the game. I spent very consistently on the game over the course of my entire seven years, like call it 20 to 30 bucks a week, essentially when it comes to drafting at the LGS or, you know, buying some drinks at the bar or whatever. And if you just like add that up over time, it's a huge amount of money and that's how you can eventually justify these bigger purchases. So I I would say, enjoy the journey, enjoy the fact that, 
you know, you get to keep your whatever version of Birds of Paradise in your cube for a long time. And then eventually when you get that foil you've always wanted, you can, uh, you know, replace it and have it be a fun moment for you. One last little interjection here. On this point, I've always been the kind of person that will either play whatever copy of a card or my ideal copy of a card. I think it is not the best use of your resources to get a card version that is maybe not the version you really want, but you think is like a little nicer than the one you have. So if a card is in my cube, it's either whatever copy I have, the cheapest, non-foil, printing, whatever, or it's the one that I deem to be my ideal version. And I would advocate for just saving up for the one you really want instead of compromising and being like, well, I can't get that one right now, so I guess I'll spend you know, a quarter of that money on a version I don't really love as much. Small thing, but one last little tip from me. I feel like we also skipped over the most obvious thing, which is that unlike a lot of formats where everybody is buying into draft, bring buying their own deck to bring to an event, uh, cube obviously, in most cases, one person owns the cube. So for seven out of eight people, potentially, they don't have to spend any money at all, uh, which dream. actually makes cube the best budget option for anybody that wants to play magic without having to spend money on it, which is where a lot of people are at. So I, I think that thinking about that aspect of the budget as well, and the fact that it also opens up your potential play group a lot to, to people that otherwise maybe wouldn't be engaged in the game is a great opportunity that the format offers. That's one of the things I'm most surprised about over the past two and a half, three years of really focusing on our local play group in the wake of the pandemic is how many people that play with us don't really have collections and love drafting cube and love coming out on Tuesdays and playing with us, but probably wouldn't be playing paper magic in a lot of other contexts because they don't have the cash or they're not willing to set aside the cash for like a competitive commander deck or whatever. It's just so cool that we get to have a place where people can play with cards that they don't have to buy themselves. Yeah, or even they're like, this is not my main TCG, I mostly play other games, but this is a cool group, and uh, exactly, I, you know, it's fun to be able to try out new things. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's a, that's more real than I would have expected when we started really trying exactly. to cultivate this group. All right, we're a little over time here because we had to talk about Tetris at the beginning, though I'm still really upset you knew about it from... I, I'm sorry. It's fine, it's just like, I'm so extremely online, I feel like you are much healthier and not quite as online. Every once in a while, I'm like, I get to be the one to bring this online thing to Anthony, isn't that so fun for me? I go online and I try and order a tofu making kit and get furious by the nature of the internet and just that's sign that off. That sounds like you, yep. <sighs> Gotta just let it all wash over you. It's so bad. Yeah, internet's bad. It's getting so much worse. <laughs> yeah, I just don't. I did really appreciate where it's like tofu making kit, and it's like, here's the little wooden box that you're expecting, and then right next to it is, would you like to spend $30,000 on a thing from Alibaba Express that is a full industrial supply, or what do you even call it? Production line. Yeah, like a machine a production that line. just, like, just spits out put 200 your, pounds of tofu every hour and or drop whatever. $30,000. Only 100 bucks on a shipping. Can you believe that? <laughs> I don't know how it comes delivered to you, but... (laughs) On that soy-based brick bombshell, that's the end of this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Mm, Nothing to tell people about, I don't think. So uh, just uh, enjoy your budget cube drafts, everybody. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. The show is produced by Anthony and I, thinking really hard about magic cards, and then speaking into microphones about it. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. We did it again. Another episode. We're approaching 200 rapidly. Wow. Are we going to do something special? Um, I mean... Eggnog? Yeah, what's the uh, what's the traditional 
200th wedding anniversary gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you know, uh, you get to, to the 36th anniversary, and then it overflows, and you start just getting different parts of your uh, prenup end up getting interpreted go, as sure, gifts. Yeah. So it's like, I have to give you uh, this line of our mortgage <laughs> plus. Uh, yeah, 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 it yeah. makes sense. The joke's there. Work on it.